Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Welcome. Glad that you're here for part two as we start in on that portion of this series. Welcome in all of our rooms, whether you're in Cinecourt East today or Cinecourt West, whether you're at the Woodlands campus, whether you're online. We're glad that you're worshiping however it is that you're here and however it is that you find yourself in your spiritual journey. Some of you are just starting out, getting going, trying to figure out what do I believe about all this stuff. Some of you have been doing it a long time and a lot of people in between. So we're really glad that you're here regardless. So uh, take your Bible, Old Testament today, the book of Esther. If you need a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? And in all of our rooms, our ushers are coming in the aisles and they'll be glad to let you borrow one. You can keep it. It's our gift to you if you need a Bible. So we started in on this new series last week that comes from one of the only two books in the whole Bible named after a woman, this book named Esther. Now, If you're inclined to think Esther, huh, sounds like a Bible story my grandmother would have told to me. Think again. This ain't your grandmother's kind of Bible story. This one's filled with stories of war and duplicity uh, through deceit, through you got king, you got queens, and as we're going to see today, a lot of sex. And so it's a little different sort of Bible story. All right, so we're gonna look today in Esther chapter two. If you weren't here last week, let me just quickly bring you up to speed where we left off at the end of chapter one, King Xerxes of Persia has just banished his wife, Queen Vashti from his presence never again to appear in his presence. Why? Because she had drawn a boundary when he hosting a drunken uh, bash of men in a ballroom in the palace, the winter palace of Susa had invited her to come in and show off her beauty for all of these men. She declined that invitation and he banished her. At the end of last week, we were sort of scratching our heads saying, now, where does God come into, how does God work in a story like this? I mean, this ain't your, your typical Bible story. We're going to continue to ask that very sort of question today. Where's God 
um, in all of this. Let's read chapter two, starting in verse one. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners to every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. And let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. He was a son of Jair, a descendant of the Jews who were carried into exile by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he'd brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who also, was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. And when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased Haggai and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her Jewish nationality or family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into the king Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, she'd return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, had suggested. And Esther won the favor of all the people who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. You might circle seventh year. That'll factor in here momentarily. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other young virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials, and he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So in the midst of all these interesting details, I believe God wants us to see something very clearly today, and that is that no matter what is happening in a person's life, no matter what's happening in this world, God is still in control. So if you want the sentence, sermon in a sentence, here's the sermon in a sentence. 
even when nothing is turning out the way that you had planned, God is still in control. Now, I'm not saying that you'll always see his hand at every turn in your story, but his absence, his silence is never his absence. Nor am I saying that you won't experience the very real consequences of your choices or the very real consequences of other people's choices that might affect you, good and bad. No, no. But even in the aftermath of terrible choices and consequences that follow, God is still in control. We're going to see that. And his overarching master plan is still being woven together. Now, I admit fully that even in saying this, uh, that it brings up all sorts of questions. I think of some of you who perhaps had your sights set on uh, a person that you really liked and you thought, she's going to be my girlfriend. She's, he's going to be my boyfriend. And maybe we're going to get married and all these sorts of things. And it just didn't turn out that way. And the person said, it's not going to happen. And your heart's broken. You're like, uh, God, what happened here? Or maybe you uh, made out an application to a college or university, and you're just like, I know this is it. I just feel it. My friends are going to go there. It's going to be amazing. And, and you got a rejection letter. And you're like, uh, hello, God, what is going on? This is not the plan. Some of you, you've been wrestling with infertility. Some of you for years wrestling with that. And that can just nearly drive a couple crazy, can't it? And you're saying, God, really? Are you really in control? Or is this one just a tad outside your reach? Others of you, maybe you've gotten a diagnosis, maybe even recently. And maybe the diagnosis is not what you wanted to hear. Maybe it's a bad diagnosis. Maybe it's a loved one's diagnosis. Maybe it has something to do with the heart, something to do with cancer, some other sort of disease. You're like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Or maybe you've faced tragedy and loss, even death of a loved one. And you really find yourself saying, you know, I just have a real hard time believing God is really in control after that. Even then, is he? Yes. Yes. God is in control. Now, to be clear, in saying that, let me also specify that I am not saying that God is actively causing any of these ills to become upon us, to come upon us. And obviously, in many of those circumstances, not all of them, but in a number of them, there were choices affecting the outcome, choices that perhaps you made that set in motion certain outcomes, choices that perhaps were made by somebody else that set in motion certain outcomes. Yet, that being the case, notwithstanding, somehow in the mystery of God's providence, while never depriving humanity of our free will, God never lets go of control. He is still in control. And Esther's story is one of the many wonderful stories in the Bible that demonstrate this to us. 
So that's why we're looking at it. I want to back up and just give you a little of the history again, um, because I think you'll find this interesting. If you go back, you remember I said circle seventh year in verse 16, the seventh year of King Xerxes. Now, if you were really paying attention last week when we were in chapter one, do you remember which year of his reign that we were in, in chapter one? I'll tell it to you so you won't have to turn back and look. We were in the third year. So in the turning of the page between chapter one and chapter two, four years have gone by. Like, what the heck happened in those four years? It just says after these things in the seventh year. Well, you have to step outside the Bible into secular history again to get that detail. So you have to get out your old high school history notes or college uh, world history notes. You have to pull out uh, Herodotus or Thucydides and, or if you never took any of those classes, you can't find any of your notes from them, just Google Greco-Persian wars. You can do the history study yourself. And what you'll find is during these four years, right in the, uh, right after, right around 480 BC, Xerxes and the Persians went off to fight the Greeks. It was an effort at empire expansion. And <clears throat> they wanted to uh, conquer more lands to expand the Persian world. <clears throat> but it didn't go as planned, not for Xerxes, not for Persia. They got their tails whipped, handed back to them. In fact, you can find it particularly interesting if you look up the Battle of Salamis and the Battle of Plataea in 480 BCE and 479 BCE, particularly and respectively in that order. So Xerxes, he comes back, the start of chapter two says, after these things, now you know what these things were. He comes back to the palace, his winter palace in Susa, and he is really down, dejected, feels like a loser. What is a loser? <clears throat> it's never fun to lose, right? And so he gets back to the palace and there's not even a queen anymore to tell him, hey, but still you're a pretty swell guy. Why? Because she, ban she was banished last week, remember? So he didn't even have a queen waiting for him anymore. So to this point, his advisors come around uh, and say, hey, you know what? We need to help him out. The guy's down in the doldrums. We need to get him a competition he can't lose. That's what he needs. He needs a competition that he can't lose. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have a beauty pageant throughout the land of Persia. And we'll just go and find all the most beautiful young ladies throughout the land of Persia. And we'll bring them here. And we'll have the Miss Persia contest. And how can you lose at that, King Xerxes? And you'll get to, to, to just sort of have some time with each one of those young virgins. You can spend a night with each of them and you can figure out which one you want to become the queen. The historian Josephus tells us that there were somewhere around 400 women that were brought to him. Now you do the math and you say, well, like one per night, that would be a beauty contest that took longer than a year, right? For him to get through and to finally make his decision. So I was thinking back to uh, 15 years ago 
And I remember when reality TV, which is still kind of this new thought, reality TV, came out with a show called The Bachelor. It's still on, right? And I remember when we were first watching that 15 years ago, we were like, are you kidding me? How crazy is that? To think that you could take a couple dozen uh, women and a guy and put them on the same roof and they'll get to know each other and find the love of your life and you'll get married and live happily ever after. And it's just going to be great. You know, the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized the producers of that show must have been going to Bible study. They were reading in the book of Esther. But, and that's where they got the idea. They're like, here's an idea for a show, you know? And, <clears throat> but instead, uh, unlike the world of TV, where everybody's getting to sign up and go if they want to be a part of it, uh, we have reason to believe, especially given the particular lack of value and freedoms that women were given uh, 2,500 years ago in that part of the world, particularly, that. Uh, probably any number of maybe all of these women were brought uh, forcefully, uh, not acquiescingly, to be part of this beauty competition, right? And, and to further understand sort of the tension that's being uh, built into this story here by, King Zerx, uh, by, the, by the author about King Xerxes and this whole situation, you have to understand whenever one of these, when every one of these young ladies would go in to spend her night with the king. Everything about her future was going to turn on that night. Here's why. There's only four things that could happen. One of four things that would happen. If he spent the night with her and he didn't like her, she was going to leave and be assigned now to the used goods portion of the harem. She would become one of his concubines for the rest of her life, whom he would never call again. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, surely they just send her home. And say, well, you know, that show didn't work out. Now, go on with your life. And you can find somebody and get married. And, and No, they wouldn't do that. That would have been unseemly to them. So she would never leave. She'd never go back to her family. That was her lot in life. Imagine that. Option two, maybe he kind of liked her, not enough to, to like move any further in the process, but enough to maybe call her back by name here or there sometime from year to year during the rest of her life. She's still assigned to live in that harem. And so, but the difference is she'd get to go back to his presence maybe a few times. Wow. Yippee, okay, and so that's option two of what's gonna happen for the rest of her life. Option three is maybe he would choose to marry her because he would have several wives because he had to have wives who were the official mothers of his children. And so maybe she would be one of the people whom he would uh, choose to marry and become mother of children. Or number four option, maybe, 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 one in 400 odds, right? She would have the crown placed on her head and she would become the queen. But really, you think about it, it's like, let's not be too Disney-esque about this. How happily ever, I mean, we already saw what happened to the previous queen, right? And so it's not like he's Prince Charming here. And, and so it, the way I see it, it's like, you know, there aren't really any good options here. You just got four options with sort of the better of the four options, I guess. And here's Esther, 16, 17, 18 years old, maybe 19. 
And surely Esther carried in her heart hopes and dreams that other girls carry, carried then, carry now. Um, maybe someday I'll have my own children. I'll have a family uh, myself. And what's going to happen to her? She's going to end up being trafficked into the king's court. Chapter 2 happens in her life. And I have to think if anybody could have looked heavenward and said, hello, life is not turning out for me the way I had planned, Esther would have been high on that list, right? I mean, her mom and dad, they've already died. Um, and so that's why she had to be reared by her, her uh, not her uncle, her cousin, um, Mordecai. She's lost her parents, and now she's lost her freedom. She's living in the palace. She's going to be in a harem forever, and maybe she'll become the queen. But this is, I, you just have to think. She's thinking, Lord, this is really not really ever what I had planned for my life. Where are you? Now, let's make sure we understand clearly. A holy God like ours never espouses what the king is doing. He never puts his hand of blessing upon the king's choices to, to, to work woman by woman, treating them all like just toys night after night. No, no. But neither does he violate the free will of mankind. Um, yet through it all, somehow, he's still there. Even if working in the shadows... He's still in control. But it shouldn't surprise us that he's still in control, even if he's working in the shadows. Because if God could work in a pig pen with a prodigal, if he could work in a harlot's home like Rahab, he could even work in the sinful bedroom of a king's palace in the land which is today called Iran. God can still work. And likewise, he's still in control in your life. And I just have a sneaking suspicion that any number of you here, you kind of needed to hear just that today. That he's still in control of your life. Because you've been wondering, is he really? I just talked the other day to a, to a fellow who, who was telling me we had lunch together and he was telling me uh, about his own life. He was telling me about how he's worked the last six years for an organization and <clears throat> given his heart and his all, his passion, worked hard as he can for this organization and he's always uh, being told, uh, one day you'll surely become a director in this organization. But year after year, somebody else would move up in the pipeline ahead of him and they would become the directors and he'd get passed over. And finally, he met with the CEO recently and the CEO said to him, it's not gonna happen. And he said to the CEO, it's not gonna happen like now, this time around, or it's not gonna happen ever. And the CEO said, ever. We just aren't seeing in you what we'd hoped we'd been seeing and what we need to be seeing for you to ever become a director. 
But it's not like he can even just say, but hey, at least you got a good job, so just enjoy that one, and you can still have a happy life from there. No, because the CEO explained, you know, your position in our leadership pipeline uh, is going to block progress. And so I've got to move you out now to put somebody in here who does have the potential of moving up. You can just imagine this, this guy who's just poured his all out for the organization for the last six years, who's got family and kids to feed, and he's like, oh my gosh, what is going on? This is not ever what I expected was going to, I could just see in his eyes as he looked across the table, his eyes were begging me, please assure me that God is really still in control because right now I don't exactly feel it. I'm doing the best I can to just kind of take the high road, put one step in front of the next and fight off the bitterness that keeps wanting to sneak into my heart, but I'm having a real hard time of it. Is he still? Yes, he still is. In fact, Romans 8.28 tells us he can take everything, even the worst of things, and he can work all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. And, and you needn't only just look at the story of Esther. There's lots of stories in the Bible that prove this over and over and over. I was thinking back to Genesis. You remember that great story of Joseph, the son uh, uh, of a man who had 11 other sons, and so Jacob has these other 12, these, these 11 sons. He favors, though, Joseph. And he gives them that coat of many colors. The sons are so envious. The brothers are, and they hate him, and they despise him. And so they sell him off into slavery and tell their dad he's dead. Your other son that you loved, he's dead. And he ends up, Joseph does, going, getting carted off to, to Egypt, where he's working a slave labor now doing menial tasks in a foreign land that he never saw himself living in. And then one day, the wife of his owner makes some sexual overtures in his direction, but he withstands those temptations and says, heavens no, I'd never do that. And yet, after he withstands the temptation, he still gets accused of the crime because she cries foul, says he was trying to rape me. Next thing Joseph knows, he's down in the dungeon prison. He's doing time in prison for crime he never committed in a land he never signed up for as a slave he never dreamt of being. And there he is, don't you know, looking heavenward saying, God, what in the world is happening in my life? This is not ever what I signed up for. Are you really in control of what's going on here? But of course, you follow the story on through and you get to that pivotal point where the king has, the Pharaoh has a dream and he can't get the interpretation for it that he needs. And finally, somebody remembers Joseph down in the dungeon and brings Joseph up and he is able to interpret the dream. And he says, king, what it means is that your land is going to have seven years of plenty. They're gonna be wonderful years, but you better save up a lot of grain because then you're going into seven years of famine and those are gonna be terrible years. And so you better have a lot of organization and store up a lot of grain in the vats that you're going to build, and, and then you'll be able to provide for people through those seven years of, of famine. Well, the Pharaoh, scratching his head, looks at Joseph and says, well, I need somebody smart, and you seem like about the smartest person in the land, so I think I'll put you in charge of it, and instantly makes him the number two person in the whole land of Egypt. So he goes from the pit to the palace, number two. And then in that memorable scene towards the end of the story, his brothers, his long lost brothers who had betrayed him and sold him into slavery. Remember, they go down because the famine had spread even up into the Middle East, into Israel. And so they're desperate 
for grain and they'd heard there's grain down in Egypt. So they go there and they're standing before their brethren in that touching scene. Joseph reveals his identity to them and he says, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And they're terrified because they think, oh my gosh, he's gonna kill us now. But what does he say in that memorable verse, 5020 of Genesis? He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He brought me here to be a savior of sorts. And now I've been able to provide food for all this land and even for the people in the land of my forefather. How's my father? And, and you have that touching scene and he moves his family back together. And so you see this again and again in scripture. When you're in the middle of the story though, it doesn't feel like he's in control at all, does it? feels like, God, what is going on here? It feels like everything is out of control. I remember experiencing the ways that God works mysteriously in my own life. And one scene that I was just thinking back to this past week, we'd started the church and Faith Bridge was going along and we had, I don't know, 100, 200 people, 300 maybe. And we were going along and good things were happening and there's only one problem that is that I was still single and here I am in the suburbs doing ministry with married people who have children and I have neither and and here I am making matters worse trying to preach sermons to people about their marriages and I don't even know what the world I'm talking about and and so one thing or another I got engaged to a lady that I was uh, going out with and we thought this is surely what God wants for us and we got engaged and we moved towards that uh, date that we had set for our wedding and but it just seemed like the closer we got to it the more the wheels got wobbly on our cart and and so we we pressed pause and said okay it's not coming together quite right let's let's back up we need a little bit more time and we set a, a future date several months out half a year or th- three quarters of a month uh, of a year later. And we made another go of it at that point. And we got towards there and again, the wheels were just wobblier than ever falling off. And so we said, okay, something's not good. So we pressed pause again. And finally, I remember we were moving towards that third uh, date that we had set and there was still, it just wasn't coming together and wasn't right. And I remember talking to Pastor Dan on the phone one night. He was still over in Georgia at the church that he was starting. And I remember in a memorable moment, he said to me, he asked me a question that would forever uh, alter my life. He said, Ken, I can't help but notice how very difficult just being engaged is proving to be for the two of you. Do you really think that if you move forward and get married, it's going to be so much better for the two of you? Or do you think that maybe God is trying to show you something? Well, I knew in that moment, this is, this is not right. 
she's a wonderful person and I'm trying to be a wonderful person. It's just that we're not, the one, we're not wonderful people together. This isn't the right thing. And so then we had to break off the engagement once and for all and I had to stand up and tell the congregation, you know, those parties, those showers that you gave to us. And I said, well, we're gonna give the gifts back because it's not gonna happen and that's really awkward and embarrassing. And I remember I'm trying to preach, but God is in control. But deep down, I'm thinking to myself, I'm kind of wondering if it's really true personally right about now because nothing's coming together quite the way that I foresaw it coming together. Well, Esther, she must have wondered herself, God, what is going on here? Given the circumstances, though, there she was. And so she chose to lean on the counsel that was being offered to her by Haggai, who was in charge of that portion of the harem, who took a liking to her and cared for her and gave her extra beauty treatments and provided her extra maidens to, to attend to her needs and moved her to a nicer place in the palace. So she was following his counsel, figuring, I suppose, hey, of the four outcomes, I guess the best of the four is to win the whole thing. So I'm just going to go for the gusto and try to win it. At the same time, she's, she's leaning on the counsel of her cousin Mordecai, who's still checking up on her every day outside the palace gate. And whispering to her, don't reveal your Jewish identity. Trust me, don't do it, Esther. This, this is not going to go well if you let them know that you're a Jewish uh, lady. Now, it's interesting. She followed that counsel, and theologians are divided on whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Some theologians look at that and they give her credit. They give her merits for her shrewdness, for being savvy enough not to ever forsake her faith. She never forsook her faith. She just didn't proclaim it. She just didn't preach it. And they say that was brilliant. Given the circumstance, that's the way it needed to be. You'd turn over though and you read some other commentaries and those commentators say, no, wrong. Uh, they grade her down and they give her demerits. I say that was faithless. That was, an, that was an act of bowing to pressure of the surroundings. She didn't stand for the one true God that she believed in. And, and which one was it? I don't know. I guess we'll have to ask Esther in heaven. Maybe she would, from heaven's vantage point, someday look back and say, you know what? I wouldn't change a thing. I was acting on the best counsel I had on the nudgings that God had given to me and I kept it quiet. Maybe on the other hand, she'd look back with regret and say, you know, I feel badly that I didn't put in a word for God earlier in the process, that I kept it so secretive, that I was overly acquiescing to the surroundings. But amazing grace, how sweet the sound. He saved me, he rescued me, he still worked through me despite my faithlessness. I don't know, we'll have to find out that part of the story from heaven. But one thing's for sure, Either which way it was, God was still in control and he was still going to be faithful to Esther. And that's the key. And wouldn't you know it, this young lady, this orphan from Israel living in Persia, whose descendants, whose ancestors had been from Israel, who's living in Persia, who had no business really being in a Miss Persia contest, she ends up winning the whole thing and now is elevated to becoming really the second most powerful person 
in all of Persia. You picking up a theme here? Isn't it interesting? You see the same thing that had happened to Joseph in Genesis now is happening to Esther. She's gone through some low points, some confusing points, some points that I'm sure she was questioning, is, are you really in control, God? And now she is at the pinnacle. She wins the whole thing. And it's not the only time you can see it in Daniel. Look back at his life and you see him rising up to become the second most important person, powerful person in the court of Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. You suppose maybe God was trying to send us a signal here. He was trying to send us a message saying, hey, you may never get arrested. You may never go into a dungeon. You may never be down in a pit. You may never get trafficked. But even if it got that bad for you, you could take heart in knowing this. I am still in control and I can work all things together for my good. You're just going to have to trust me and trust my timing in that. But I know, I know some of you right now, right now you're thinking to yourself, yeah, mostly good. But Ken, Every one of those stories you told ends happily. Like Esther's story, it's going happy now. She's going to be the queen. Same with Daniel. Same with Joseph. We know your story. You, you ended up getting married. You have a happy family with your kids and all of that. And, but what about when it doesn't end happy? Because some stories, can they don't end so happily, right? That's true. Some stories don't. And the, the reality is that, the, that the, the painful middle of some stories lasts a long time. Sometimes it lasts a lifetime. And I wouldn't want you to hear me for a second be minimizing that reality or denying it. Mm-mm. I think of some parents who lost a child And that will be a pain that they carry f- for their whole life. It doesn't just like go away. Um, what then? Other tragedies. What about those? Well, let's consider our options. What? I, don't, I guess you could say God. Maybe God was just having a, you know, a bad run when that season happened, right? No. That can't be it. Perhaps your loved one just got caught in the forgotten middle of God taking a long winter's nap. Could that be it? No, that can't be it. We know from Psalm 121, he who watches over you will not ever slumber. So what is it? I don't know. I do wish I did, and I do wish I could tell you why. But I can't. Because I'm not God. Therefore, I don't know. And I even also know this. I even also know that sooner or later, every single one of us hearing my voice are going to experience some shade of the same outcome, some variation of that outcome is going to befall every one of us because you and I will someday each breathe 
our last breath on this side. Some of us will get, I guess you could say, lucky enough to live long, full lives, relatively pain-free, illness-free, and then one night we'll go to bed and there's not drama and trauma and pain and medical bills and we just cross over in the middle of the night. Seems like a pretty nice way to go. But statistics show us that's not the way most of us are gonna go out, especially in these technologically savvy and medically uh, sophisticated days when lives are prolonged. And we, we get the upside of that, but then we get the downside of that as well, right? The what's the downside? The downside is the reality that most of us will probably go out finally encountering some illness, some disease that lingers, that is pushed back maybe for seasons, but then encroaches again, and maybe is pushed back, but then encroaches. Many of us will go through seasons of convalescence, maybe protracted, prolonged convalescence, and running up high medical bills at that, that will still finally someday end in death. Either way, I know this, the death rate hasn't changed. It is still hovering right at 100%. Every single one of us. But then, friends, you know something? Even when that moment comes in your life and in mine, God will still be in control. And if you want proof of it, don't just stay in the great stories of the Old Testament. Turn to the New Testament. Turn to the New Testament. Turn over to Jesus. Goodness, if there was ever a man who deserved to have the good life, happy from start to finish, it should have been he, right? After all, in him there was no sin. So it makes sense that we who are all sinners might have some pain and some peril along the way. Not him, though, right? He was sinless, so that should surely be a happily ever after story if there was pain-free, right? Wrong. Because the more his perfection came clear to his enemies, the more his enemies despised him and envied him and hated him and began to rally the people to say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they finally did crucify him. And he died that painful death. And even then, friends, in dying, God was showing us something. He was still showing us, even in his dying, how very much in control he still was. For even as Jesus, who had never sinned, hung there on the cross, absorbing onto himself like a sponge the sins that you've committed and that I've committed, that the world has committed, absorbing all of those sins in behalf of each of us and all of us. Do you realize what was happening? Even when the darkness overcame the land and his disciples fled off into the dark of night like little animals scampering away with their tails between their legs. Even after the curtain was rent in the temple and darkness overcame the land. Don't you see what was happening in that moment? Even when his enemies were exclaiming, we got him, we finally won. Friends, don't miss what was happening in that moment. In that very moment, even then, God was weaving to his and our uh, victory right into the tapestry 
of human time and history. He was still in control even then. He was preparing to show us how very in control he was and how very much he works all things together for the salvation of the world so that at just the right time, on the third day, he was able to stoop down and infuse life back into Jesus, bringing him back to life. And in so triumphing over the grave, signifying to all of us who've linked ourselves to him through faith, who've tethered ourselves to him through faith, that you too will rise in the end. For you, there will finally be hope. No matter how long the painful middle of your story must last, on this side, there is hope. Because in the same way that he overcame sin and suffering and pain and death, so shall we in the end who have tethered ourselves to him. And so friends, that's where the hope is. So when you find yourself asking, what is going on, God? Are you still there? This life of mine is not turning out the way that you had planned. When you see some of your story as you read Esther's story, keep turning in the Bible and turn all the way into the New Testament until you get to that crucifixion scene and read that scene again. But don't stop there. You gotta turn the page one further. You gotta get to the resurrection because that's where the victory is. That's where the hope comes. And that, friends, is where we who follow Jesus continue to fix our eyes and our faith. So cling to him and trust in him. Turn to him, lean on him, put your all into him. Because if you will, you will discover that no matter what may come your way, he will still be in control. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth. It's a good word for us. It's a good reminder because so often, Lord, we are inclined to shrug our shoulders and throw our hands up and say, God has surely lost control. It's just, it's just nothing's panning out. He must have gotten knocked off his throne. But even then, Lord, we're reminded that if if you couldn't even be shocked by the cross, and if you weren't knocked off your throne even by that, but you were still in control, weaving together victory that would be ours, even in that dark day, that you're still in control of our lives now. Come whatever storm, come whatever hell and high water may befall us, that you're still very much in charge. My prayer, Lord, is that you would re- um, juvenize us in our faith. For those of us who've journeyed a long time, many years with you, but perhaps have, have even found ourselves wondering, guess all this stuff I've believed all these years, is it really true? Because it certainly feels kind of like things are coming unglued in my life. I pray, God, that even today, Esther's story might draw us back, that we might see you, Jesus and be re-emboldened in our faith, re-infused with life and the hope that comes through you. I pray, God, for some who are here and perhaps they've just never even stepped into a relationship with you in the first place. I pray even in this quiet moment as we come to an end, I pray, God, even now uh, that you just 
come into their heart. Friend, you just invite him right now. You just say, Lord Jesus, I need a savior to come into my heart. I'm asking you right now, I'm opening up the door. I'm asking you by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come in and fill me up? Because I, I want you to live inside of me. I need your forgiveness for my sins and I need the hope that you can infuse into a soul. I need you to come into my life and be my savior. Thanks God for the hope and the assurance that we have in you. Won't you help us to keep our minds and our hearts and our eyes fixed on you this day and every day? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Hi, I'm Dan Slagle. Welcome to another edition of Postscript. Today we're with Pastor Ken, who brought us another message from our series from the Book of Esther that we're calling Business Not As Usual. Today's uh, message was entitled, Where is God? And it was a look at the providential hand of God, how God, uh, as only God can, is guiding and orchestrating history toward a purposed end, even when we can't see that He is doing that. Good message, lots of good questions. We'll jump right in. Uh, the first one has to do with a reference you made to Joseph from the Old Testament. Uh, the questioner quotes Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. It seems to use the same language regarding purpose and intentions for both the brothers and God. Did God purpose and bring about Joseph's trials or merely use them? Right. Well, this is really easy. <laughs> Not. So, um, you know, the, um, this is a question that is touching on the age-old uh, tug of war that Christians um, have had trying to... to figure out how much of what is happening in the world is foreordained by God and on the other hand how much of what is happening in, in life and in the world is uh, predicated on the, f the free will and the choices that man has made right. um, and in neither instance is God would God be out of control? The question it just has to do with if we could be God for a day and really see, because the tapestry was drawn back, how much is he uh, ordaining, organizing? Well, not even necessarily organizing and even at least ordaining, but let's just call the word causing. Okay. How much is he causing this to happen? Few people have any problem with saying, well, God causes everything until you get to tragedy. Right. Until you get to the terrible things, the destructive things. Especially something terrible happening. Or to, to me, me, or to my loved one. Uh, and, and that's where 
then a person says, what are we, but, but the Bible says in him, there is no sin. And so he can't be causing this sinful thing to be happening. Well, that is true. He cannot possibly be causing sin because in him, there is no sin. On the other hand, the, the challenge for us is to figure out, okay, well, if he is not causing everything, then how much is he not causing and how much is he allowing? And, and this is just a perpetual dance that Christians have had and theologians have written thick books sure. about uh, coming at it from traditionally what people refer to as the Calvinistic side or the Arminian side and the Calvinistic side playing up the sovereignty of, of God and um, n not factoring out or negating that man has free will, the Arminian side, uh, not negating that God is sovereign and that he's absolutely in control, but emphasizing the responsibility and the freedoms of man and the choices and the consequences that are subsequent. Sure. So uh, what is the answer? Well, I'm, with, with, at the very least, I'm just going to go with what Joseph said. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Uh, how much of the of the ill faded decades that Joseph had to endure was God uh, pre-planning or causing right down to his being uh, forsaken by his brothers and sold into slavery and betrayed by his owner's wife and on and on and on. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but at some point, we can happily acknowledge through it all, God was never knocked off his throne and was always working his uh, perfect will into um, reality. That will in Genesis being, there's thousands, millions of people who are gonna need food. Right. And there's gonna to have to be someone who's gonna organize this and it's going to be you, Joseph. And yeah, I, I think in light of the fact that, as you say, Christians have debated this for centuries, sure. and in light of the fact that Scripture speaks of both the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity, uh, I don't think it is really much of a cop-out for us to confess there's mystery Absolutely. to this. Uh, you and I certainly aren't going to figure it out no. in a postscript. Uh, but yeah, there, there are going to be those aspects of our relationship with God that are simply going to be beyond mm -hmm. our finite minds right. to, to comprehend. Nevertheless, we still recognize somehow, some way, mm -hmm. they're both at work. Now, and thinking of the, the, the word picture that I think it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon gave back in the 1800s, uh, the free responsibility, the free will of man and the sovereignty of God are like two pillars that go from the ground up into the heavens beyond the clouds, which seem to be running side by side or parallel in their vertical upward direction. But though beyond the clouds, we can't see how they're gonna to come together, they do come together. Mm -hmm. And only from God's vantage point someday on heaven's side, I suppose, will we be able to see how did that come together? And that'll be interesting. Yeah. Oh, Charles uh, 
did have a way of painting a picture, Pictures, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. that's good. Well, this same questioner then follows up with, with two other questions. How then does this relate to the cross and what does that mean for us in our everyday lives? This uh, coexistence of sovereignty and free will. Well, I mean, I think it relates in that going back to Genesis 3, after the fall, uh, you have the first indication, the first reference from God that someday I'm going to bring a Savior. And throughout the whole Old Testament, you have this talk of the Savior who's going to come, the Savior who's going to redeem, and, and this sort of thing, and they're always looking for the Savior. And then, of course, in the New Testament, he walks onto the stage, and there he is. Well, clearly, he was working that plan throughout all of history. He said, I, I've got my trump card that I'm going to, it's, I've got a Savior, and he is coming. And I'm going to, to lay that card down at this point, in, as uh, what John said, in the fullness of time, that's when it's going to be. Now, why was it in that full period of time? I don't know, but that's when the Lord, when God said, it's time for this to happen. In the meanwhile, all of the world was going on around uh, these people and right into Jesus' life. All of life was happening around Jesus. And so you have um, people who are making choices to hate him mm -hmm. and to... Uh, betray him, to crucify him, and were they not fully choosing to do that? Well, clearly they were choosing to do that. Was God not orchestrating that at the same time? Well, clearly he was orchestrating it at the same time. Um, Scripture you, also speaks of, of the lamb that was slain before the, the foundation, foundation of, of the, the world. world. That's right. Yeah, right. You know, here again, another word picture that, that brings these two together, I think, comes from Tozer, who talked about the, uh, the proverbial uh, cruise liner that's sailing from England to America. Mm -hmm. And he says, on that great cruise ship are several thousand people and they're doing what they want to do and swimming in the pool or playing their shuffleboard or whatever they want to do and they're exercising all the freedom uh, that they might want to exercise as they enjoy that cruise but meanwhile he says that great liner is not going to diverge off course it is going to get to america just as according to planned plan well in a similar sort of way, he's saying that's how it is with us. We are on the ship, um, and God is our captain, and he's bringing to fulfillment ultimately his great plan and his purposes. Meanwhile, we are plenty able to run around, even make a fool of ourselves if we choose to. Sure. But it's not going to knock him or his plan off course. Um, does that mean our choices aren't mattering? No, 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 they are mattering. Clearly they're mattering. Um, and there's consequences and there's outcomes, but God is still going to be sovereign and, and his hand of providence is going to work despite it, yeah. in spite of it. I remember reading a, a Victorian era theologian once using Victorian era language, talking about uh, God. Which already makes you more spiritual than Of I course. <laughs> Because I don't we knew Victorian that. spirituality. <laughs> <laughs> I 
he essentially said, uh, God says to the devil and to us, it doesn't matter what you do, everything will ultimately redound to my glory. Somehow, some way, yep. uh, it's going to come back to me and it's going to glorify me. Yep. And uh, that's, 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 the, that's the tough thing to try and figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, another questioner. Okay. How can we have faith in God's goodness when His blessings seem to be so randomly bestowed? Well, <laughs> they do seem randomly bestowed sometimes, don't they? Um, of course, for us to say these blessings are randomly bestowed is a little bit presumptuous mm-hmm. because th- the presumption that we're making is I would know better than God how to bestow these blessings. Right. And there's not a one of us who wouldn't like to be God. And at least who, for a day. At least for a day. And at least in this situation, uh, with these blessings or not blessings. Um, and so, yeah, I... I think a, a, another factor related to what you're talking about is our inability, because we are broken, mm-hmm. To determine what truly counts as a blessing. Blessing, sure. Yeah, I mean, because what might not seem. Well, like even the story that I told from the conversation that Jude had and the broken engagement that I would uh, endure. Well, that didn't feel like a blessing. No. Not then, not, not that day it didn't. But, what, 17, 18 years later. Certainly proves to be. Yes. Yeah. And so having the gift of time, uh, in many instances, helps us to find the blessing. Uh, not in all instances. Some instances, the, the the painful middle of a story just goes on for a lifetime, and we'll have to come to a point of clarity on the other side. Yeah. And that's where our hope still resides yeah. for it, all of us. It truly would pre- be presumptuous of us to look at somebody else's possessions or station in life mm-hmm. and decide, well, that's the sum total of blessing. Mm-hmm. And since I don't have that, I'm not blessed. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, th- there may be others in there we know That's nothing about. Well, sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, another question. Uh, this to me is a tough section of the Bible to get a good Christian message from. What led you to pick it? And would you agree the Bible message was more hidden here than in most of the rest of the Bible? Yeah, that's t- two or three good little questions. Yeah. Um, well, what led me to pick it is uh, it was about time for us to do an Old Testament uh, study. I enjoy doing character studies. And and with interesting things even going on in the world, it seemed like, eh, you know, this could be a, a, an instructive word for mm-hmm. us at, at an instruct, at a, at a, in a timely sort of way. Um it is a book which, uh, what do they say, the hiddenness of God? It, something like it. Well, yeah, because yeah, God isn't even mentioned in the book. Right. And um, scholars like Karen Jobes suggest that was intentional. The author was trying to signal something mm-hmm. to the reader that these were uh, anti-Semitic uh, times. 
and this story is going to be a very anti-Semitic uh, sort of story. And here's uh, one way that, that a couple of people navigated that anti-Semitism. Uh, and a way that God vindicated, and as he has, what, throughout history, you just, you go back to uh, when the Jewish people were made slaves by the Pharaoh in Egypt, you look at King Herod when Jesus was being born, killing the baby Jewish boys. Mm -hmm. um, you get to this story, anti-Semitism. You get to the 1900s, World War II, you get to Hitler. So you find this interesting pattern throughout his history of anti, it's even happening today, isn't it? I mean, even the last week or two, we've seen this, this uh, uh, rash of, of anti-Semitic displays and the knocking over the tombs and right. hundred or so Jewish centers, community centers and all getting these bomb threats and such. So, uh, but the author was trying to signal, hey, even when you can't see them, and even when we're not gonna talk about them because it wouldn't maybe be the safest thing to talk about them, you're gonna see his hand is still at, still work, at work and he's still in control. Um, is it hard to find the Christian message? Well, I, yes and no. I mean, in every Old Testament story, in every Old Testament book, um, we can find our way to the cross. Mm -hmm. And that's what I tried to do by the end of the story today, or by the end of the sermon today, uh, to get us to gospel and help us to see um, that she wasn't going in through anything. For that matter, Joseph didn't and Daniel didn't. That Jesus didn't have to go through in his own way, which uh, in some ways was even more terrible and certainly more undeserved. Sure. And yet, what did God do? He used that scene to bring about the redemption of the world. And so he's never out of control. He's never at a loss for power. Um, his sovereign hand is at work and he's, uh, he'll bring good from it. Even we can't see how in the world could anything good come from it. Well, I, I would concur that this series is, is timely hmm. because uh, certainly in, in our lifetime, I don't remember a season when change has been happening in the same manner and at the same pace hmm. as we have experienced uh, e even in the last two years. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the world is just a different place. And so uh, it's a good word yeah. for Christ followers to yeah. be reminded, hey, uh, thank goodness I'm not in charge and thank goodness he is. <laughs> that he is, yeah. that's right. Amen, that's right. amen. All right, one last question. Uh, Awesome message, they say. Thank you so much, Pastor Ken. On a minor note, I heard you use the term BCE instead of BC. Wouldn't BC be more appropriate mm -hmm. from a Christian perspective? Sure. sure it would. Yeah. And I don't even know why I did that. Maybe it's because I was referring to secular history, like Herodotus and Thucydides, but it, BC. We'll go with BC that. BC it is. One more from this same person. Also, you mentioned Esther being in heaven, which I don't doubt, but how does the Bible explain how Esther and others achieved salvation before Christ was even born? Sure. Well, right. And so this has to do with really all of the heroes of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, and we know 
because Hebrews, was it 11 or 13? Chapter 11. 11, of course, uh, the Hall of Fame of Faith starts listing out uh, a number of them, that they are there. So what was salvific for them? They had no Jesus in the cross and the empty tomb uh, to, to put their trust in. Um, so what was it? Well, you go back to Genesis 15 and you start with Abraham and God tells him, I want you to get up and I want you to leave uh, where you are in this land of Ur of the Chaldeans and I want you to go to a place. What place? I'll show you along the way, but I'm not going to tell it to you now. And by faith, he got up and moved his family and they started moving. And of course, they'd get to the land that we call Israel today. Well, you read that interesting verse in Genesis 15 that says, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What was? His faith. Right. And so um, what the Bible is emphasizing with our Old Testament heroes is they were putting as much of their faith as they had in as much of God as he had revealed mm -hmm. to them, which even included hints of a savior that was going to come someday, but they did not have that fuller, uh, more complete revelation that we get to benefit from being on this side of the cross. Um, but they were putting their faith nonetheless in him. And that was salvific. Yeah, I can think of it, at that. least two places in the New Testament where that is uh, expounded even further. Paul in the book of Romans mm -hmm. builds a huge argument on the importance of faith from Abraham. He, uh, he references sure, Abraham sure, right. several, several times there in the early part of Romans. And then in uh, the book of Hebrews, which he referenced just a moment ago, the author at one point says, um, those who would know God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hmm. Essentially saying, mm -hmm. I'm exercising my faith, faith. that you're there yeah. and you're going to reward the exercise of that That's right. faith. And uh, I suppose Esther certainly was exercising faith sure. uh, along the way. Right, and you get to take up that portion yeah. next week um, yeah. with chapter four. Looking forward to it. And she's gonna step forward with as much faith and courage as she had to as much of God as apparently she was aware of. Amen. Amen. I'm looking forward to your sermon next week. Well, thanks for a good one today. Thank and thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Postscript. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org postscript.